Welcome to Family Features, a podcast for anyone who wants to experience healthy relationships within their family. This is Dr. Corey Gilbert, and I'm honored to come alongside you to encourage, educate, and equip you as we focus on the different relationships that make us family. Let's get started and focus on today's feature. Welcome to the Family Features Podcast. My name is Dr. Corey Gilbert, and this is part two looking at this book, Gender Ideology, What Do Christians Need to Know? In this section, we're going to look at the history. Where did the gender theory come from? And so join me. And again, this is from this book, um, Gender Ideology by Shannon James. I highly recommend purchasing this um, and look forward to blessing you with knowledge that helps you understand where we're at today. So um, join me now. So where did gender theory come from? Here's where it gets into history. Now we're going to look at a lot of really key players and why this is actually probably, if you aren't already nervous to this point, you get, you need to get nervous as to some of the sources of this um, for you to think about. In 2017, a law was passed in California against care providers in case uh, homes who, are, who use the wrong pronoun or name for residents who claim to have changed sex. Such care providers can be imprisoned, the care provider, for up to a year for the crime of misgendering. The state of California is enforcing its acceptance of gender theory and tolerating no dissent. And there is no scientific evidence. Gender theory pushes this further. You don't just have a right to live according to your sexual orientation regarding whom you desire to have sexual relations with. You also have the right to live in keeping with your deeply felt gender identity, whatever that is, and whether or not it is keeping with your biological sex. You claim the right to decide who you have sexual relations as. Challenging the reality of the male-female distinction is revolutionary. Convergence of the sexual revolution and the cultural revolution. Where is this from? What, what's the source? The, where do we start here? Frederick Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900s, when he lived, based on premise that God is dead, the logical outcome, there's no objective truth, there's no absolute morals, demanded the repressive Christian, or that, demanded that repressive Christianity must give way to unlimited freedom. That's where we're at. That's what we want. So here are the eight pioneers of of the sexual revolution. Number one, Karl Ulrichs, 1825-1895, German doctor and campaigner for homosexual rights, advanced the theory of a female soul in a man's body in order to argue the case that homosexuality was innate and should not be penalized. This was the beginning of the idea that biological sex could be divided from the gendered experience. Number two, Sigmund Freud, 1856-1939, an Austrian neurologist and author, founder of psychoanalysis. He regarded religion as an illusion, a purely human construct. The idea of a god was a fairy story, believed that human suffering was caused by a religion. Humans are highly developed animals, and he regarded sexual desire in purely physical terms. He believed that children, from the earliest age, have sexual desires, and he rejected the notion of childish innocence. Family is the seedbed of neurosis and other disorders. It all comes from mom and dad. Freud's achievement, constructing a whole understanding of sexuality that was empty of moral criteria, which was the gateway to the sexual revolution that was now opened wide. 
Number three, Magnus Hirschfeld, 1868 to 1935. He's the architect of the sexual revolution. Gay doctrine activists believe that every man and woman was a mixture of male and female uh, characteristics and devised a classification of gender-variant individuals in 1910. He actually oversaw the first sex reassignment surgeries. Number four, Alfred Kinsey, 1894 to 1956. He was a sex researcher addicted to sexual perversion, claimed that from infancy children were sexually active and should be encouraged to satisfy their desires. His experiments involved the abuse of infants and children. He aimed for the overthrow of all legislation which restricted sexual freedom. He normalized engaging in homosexual behavior, to use pornography, etc. For Kinsey, nothing was unnatural if people wanted to do it, including bestiality. Number five was Harry Benjamin, uh, 1885 to 1986. Um, in 1966, Kinsey's associate Harry Benjamin, so they worked together, they wrote the first textbook on transsexualism, argued that the logical outcome of accepting evolution was also accepting gender fluidity. So looked at to a future where scientific and medical advances would make it possible to change a biological male into a woman with full capacity to reproduce as a woman. Very interesting. And here's a quote from Benjamin from 1966 book, The Transsexual Phenomenon. Darwin's theory has pointed up the identity of male and female origins. Out of the same basic living molecules, there were evolved different sex patterns, male and female. Thus, the old language of opposite sexes derived from the theological, theological mythology that God, male, created male and female as absolutely separate creatures, has been modified by modern biology. Out of the same molecules, the chemists can produce estrogens and androgens. Out of the same nucleic acids, the chromosomes that male, make a man or a woman are evolved. Medical arts can bring about the dramatic womanization of a man, or manization of a woman. The progress of medical science and technology, I believe, will eventually make it possible to change a normal man into a normal woman with the capacity to become a reproducing other. 1966. <coughs> Benjamin pioneered the idea that if someone was convinced they were living in the wrong body, then the body should be fixed to fit with what their mind says rather than attempting to change their mind to fit the biological facts. Harry Benjamin and Alfred Kinsey are both strong advocates of pedophilia. They have video recordings of them engaging in sexual acts with children as part of their research. They both endorsed a book by friend Rene Guyon, The Ethics of Sexual Acts, 1948, which also advocated decriminalizing sex with children. Number six player here, Wilhelm Reich, 1897 to 1957, an Austrian doctor of medicine and a psychoanalyst, believed that the suffering and cruelty in society were due to the enforcement of Christian morality. That's the problem. Traditional marriage, he argued, wrongly deprived women and children of their sexual rights. Like Freud, he wanted to liberate people from their shame. Also like Freud, he promoted the idea that children should be able to engage in sexual activity. Sexual suppression in childhood, he said, led to unhappiness throughout life. Fascism arose because people had suffered sexual repression. Reich himself had suffered abuse 
uh, as a child and inflicted sexual abuse on young patients. Hmm, heartbreaking. Number seven player here, John Money, 1921 to 2006. Psychiatry professor, like Kinsey and Benjamin, Money campaigned for the freedom to change gender and the decriminalization of sex with children. Money was the co-founder of John Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic. In 1966, hit the headlines in America with a groundbreaking case of a man who'd become a woman. And eight. Robert Stroller, 1924-1991, argued that sex is biological, what we are born as, and gender is social, what we learn through socialization. In 1968, in his book Sex and Gender, he distinguished gender identity as a personal awareness of belonging to one sex and not the other, from gender role as the behavior um, one displays in society. Who has a lot? So what about the evidence? 1970s, Dr. Meyer and Professor Paul McHugh at John Hopkins General Identity Clinic surveyed 50 transsexuals who had been treated there. Those that had undergone sex reassignment surgery were little improved in their psychological condition afterwards, contrary to what you hear in the media. And he concluded, Hopkins was fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness. We psychiatrists, I thought, would do better to concentrate on trying to fix their minds and not their genitals. Wow. Eventually, those suffering gender confusion have been claimed as being the most oppressed of the victim class, another new piece of this, by representatives of, an, of another powerful revolution, a cultural revolution sometimes described as cultural Marxism, sometimes referred to as, a, as critical theory. And here's where all this ties into critical theory. Um, really, really important. These pioneers of the Cultural Revolution, one of the most destructive and evil movements in history, was unleashed when Karl Marx demanded the abolition of private property in the name of liberating the world's poor. Communist regimes around the world were responsible for the deaths of 110 million people from 1900 to 1987. Economic Marxism may have been discredited, but the narrative of oppression has been carried over into a powerful force. The idea of cultural Marxism or critical theory, which views all reality through the lens of who holds the power. Critical theory converged with the sexual revolution to produce the current dogma of identity politics, which many of you are probably very familiar with nowadays. Here are some key players in this one. Number one, Antony Gramsci, 1891-1937. Italian Marxist, distanced himself from aspects of economic Marxism. He maintained that people are to be set free, and the instruments of oppression are institutions like the family and the church. That's the problem. His theory of cultural hegemony describes uh, how the state and the ruling capitalist class holds power. The Greek word hegemon means ruler. The ruling class keeps power by enforcing values and norms, such as traditional morality. Those values and norms, such as those promoted by Christianity, must be overthrown. But you don't frighten people by calling this process neo-Marxism. You use the language of equality and freedom. Get a hold of the language. 
critical, and it was done. It, ha it has been done. Number two player here, Herbert Marcuse, 1898-1979, philosopher and sociologist associated with the Frankfurt School, a Marxist study center founded in 1923, which sought to destabilize capitalist societies by means of critical theory. The long march through key institutions, including educational, media, corporate, and religious bodies, would commence. The goal here, infiltrating them with persistent challenges to all conventional values. Any who questioned this could be smeared with labels of Bourgeau, superstitious, authoritarian, or fascist. And Christians, of course, were labeled all of the above. In 1955, Marquis shot to international fame with the publication of Eros and Civilization. Here he brought together the idea of Marx and Freud in order to demand a non-repressive society, as in a society liberated from traditional moral norms. Freud had described what he regarded as being the sexual desires of infants as being as undifferentiated, so focused on any part of the body, and likely to be bisexual or incestuous. He had called this polyam polymorphous perversity. Later on, the child's raw desire would be constrained by education into social norms, liberating adults back into that joyous freedom of polymorphous perversity. Throughout, through our restraints, any behavior is acceptable. Marcus argued that in a free society, tolerance of different lifestyles would be exposed for what it really is, a pseudo-tolerance which assumed the repressive superstructures of traditional norms. He called this repressive tolerance and said it must be not be tolerated. So the new tolerance could justify eliminating the old tolerance. This is the pretext by which you can get rid of any who still believe in absolute moral standards. This is a justification for censoring those who advocate such repressive ideas as marital fidelity, or heteronormativity, or childhood innocence. The flip side of complete freedom is murder, murderous intolerance. Herbert Marcuse has been described as the father of the new left and of the student protest movements of the 60s. His last and destructive legacy was the unraveling of any confidence in truth. The goal was to persuade a gullible population of students that words don't actually mean anything. They are just tools to achieve what the writer or speaker wants. This was the project of deconstruction, a.k.a. the project of cultural subversion. It is most often referred to today as a critical theory. Interesting, 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 isn't it? So the, now we have the advent of identity politics. Once you've established truth, you are left in a society where value and worth are assigned to people on the basis of their place in a hierarchy of power. Those at the top of the hierarchy are the privileged oppressors, such as white, educated, cisgender, able-bodied males. Those at the bottom are the oppressed victims, such as people of color, disabled, trans, and uneducated people. Welcome to the brave new world of identity politics. In this inverted universe, those at the top are stripped of their right to make any comment on the position of those at the bottom. The trump card is played when you invoke intersectionality 
to show how someone can suffer layers of oppression. If someone is marginalized due to multiple factors, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and so on, <coughs> then their victim status is assured. Those who are enlightened about the plight of the victim class or classes are sometimes described as woke or aware. Those classified as being without privilege or as being victims can claim at any time to have been offended, distressed, or insulted, no matter whether there's any objective ground for their claim. It is their perception that matters. Such feelings are subjective, but they cannot be challenged. Someone might claim offense from hearing a sermon, distress from reading a Bible text, insult from receiving an invitation to a carol service. They can demand that a visiting lecture be banned from a campus or that a university group be disaffiliated. Trauma might be triggered if they hear any expression of a different view from their own. <coughs> the triumph of identity politics is why people suffering gender confusion are often presented as the heroes of our time today. In 2014, the celebrated star of the Netflix drama Orange is the New Black, Laverne Cox, appeared on the front page of Time magazine <coughs> Excuse me, in his chosen female identity. Cox was born a boy. Time had only admiration and praise for this person's courageous and heroic journey to live out his real identity. <coughs> the convergence of identity politics, radical feminism, and queer theory. So the first wave of feminism had focused on campaigning for equal rights for women. During the 60s, some second wave or radical feminists argued that to maintain any gender distinctions propped up the edifice edifice of oppressive patriarchy. So some said to affirm any essential differences between the sexes was the heresy of essentialism. Judith Lorber, a radical feminist, wrote this. When we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. <coughs> at the same time, those campaigning for gay rights asserted that the assumption that heterosexuality is normal is hateful, and asserted the belief that heterosexual marriage is foundational to society's stability is oppressive. The theory underpinning this became known as queer theory. The term for deliberately provocative seeking to gain attention the aim was to challenge the belief that man-woman sexual relations are normal. Such a belief was labeled heteronormativity and was regarded as hateful. The alliance of cultural Marxism, or critical theory, with queer theory resulted in sexual minorities being regarded as being the most victimized of the victim classes. <coughs> Their claim could not be denied. Any criticism was automatically classified as coming from a position of privilege and was therefore seen as being able to um, to be automatically discounted. Judith Butler, author of The Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, 1990, argued that the binary framework for both sex and gender is just a fiction, made up by the oppressive class of heterosexual males in order to maintain their advantage. She advanced the idea that being a man or a woman is not something that we are, but, but that rather it is something we do, a performance. 
Someone with a female body may perform socially as a male. And in that case, the word man can be used to signify, signify a female body. One can see why she called this the subversion of identity. Butler and others argued that not only is gender a social construct, sexual differentiation itself need not be fixed. If our sexual orientation, who we are attracted to, is fluid, i.e. whether we are sexually attracted to those of our own sex or to those of the opposite sex, why not our sexual identity, who we see ourselves as being as well? During the 80s and 90s, a new collective identity emerged. So, what is it? LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transgender people. Um, in time, more letters were, were be, would be added, so as to include those identifying as queer, or even questioning at times that Q, intersex people, the I, and those who claim to be asexual, so attracted to neither male or female, the A, and then anyone else, plus. The acronym now looks like the LGBTQIA+. Queer theory takes the moral high ground. <clears throat> it is thought to be abusive to assign people to one sex. It is thought to be hateful not to allow people to choose or recognize their own unique identity. Most people would not be interested in queer theory, but the notion of gender fluidity has permeated our culture with astonishing speed. So to challenge it is often regarded as being bigoted. But now we have a threat to freedom. Insisting on the legal right to live in any gender identity means that someone's personal feelings must be respected, even when those feelings contradict biological fact. They can demand that you call them by a name or in pronouns that contradict physical reality. That's why the state of California decided to penalize care providers who refuse to address people in care homes by their preferred names and pronouns. <clears throat> That's the reason why an elite women's college in America, Wellesley College, introduced a new admissions policy. So it's a women's only college. They will admit biological men who claim to be women. They will not admit biological women who claim to be men. The assumption behind the admission policy? Well, gender is all in the mind. We can determine or we can define ourselves. The claim to be able to define ourselves is the logical outworking of the hyper-individualism of Western societies. Each individual is to be free and self-determining, not constrained by social expectations regarding gender. Despite a lack of scientific grounding, gender theory has become mainstream. For many of you, it's what you believe. You haven't known much else, and I hope this helps deconstruct some of that. It is being integrated into the legal and educational systems in a number of countries, and in some countries, there are laws to silence any opposition to this theory. In Canada, Bill C-16 became law in June 2017. It adds gender identity and gender expression to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. That means that any questioning of a person's claims to identify as the opposite sex can be classed as hate speech. Penalties can be exacted from any who misgender others or who, who refuse to use gender-neutral pronouns. This poses an unprecedented challenge to freedom of speech and expression. It places subjective feelings over scientific fact. The passing of this bill, C-16, was firmly opposed by academic Dr. Jordan Peterson of Toronto University. He believes that the bill enforced linguistic untruth. Peterson argues that uh, terms like gender identity are the prop, uh, propositions of radical social, con social constructionists 
and are being used to bully opponents into submission. He sees with moral clarity the threat cultural Marxism or critical theory and gender theory pose to human freedom. All of this poses a direct challenge to religious freedom. It threatens to silence churches and parents who seek to teach biblical truths that male and female, he created them. Oh, that is heavy. That is a lot to think about. Um, bless you as you process this. It is not fun. This is heartbreaking, actually. And I pray that you and your family will actually continue to study and actually really make sure you found and, and ground your life in God's word and in a biblical view of gender and sexuality. Bless you. Thank you for tuning in to the Family Features Podcast. It has been an honor to serve. Find out more about Dr. Gilbert and his resources for you and your family's growth and success at HealingLives.com. And if you think you could use some support along the way, be sure to book that call at BookDrG.com. And one more thing, if you found this helpful, please share this podcast with others so that we can change the world together.